One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. G'day guys, welcome back to the Rugby League Guru Podcast. As we're going to do every Sunday from now on, we're going to give you the best of the week. So this is some of our best podcasts from the week. Some of them you might have already listened to. If so, feel free to skip through those. We kick off with our deep dive on Andrew Johns. For me, this was definitely the podcast of the week. Thoroughly enjoyed this one. I think it's a must listen for all of you guys. Goes for about 15 minutes. Then we head into our Lachlan Lewis situation from the weekend. Obviously, his little uh, UFC attack on Cody Walker. We take a deep dive on that one. We also talk about investing in NRL cards, all of my honest opinions on that. I had a question sent in to me this week from one of our listeners that that got me a little bit interested. So dove into that for you guys. No expert on it, just giving my opinion on that situation. Uh, We also spoke spoke about my top five rugby league documentaries that I would like to see made. Obviously off the back of Tales from Tiger Town on Monday night, that one's a really good one. My top five all-time documentaries that I'd like to see based on rugby league stories. That one is an absolutely fantastic listen. That was probably my second choice of the week as well. Guys, I'm going to hand it over now. It's going to go for about an hour and 20 minutes or so. Anything that you have heard or anything like that, scroll through, give it a little fast forward. Enjoy, guys. I'll try to bring you a little bit more of this extended content every Sunday, just the best of from the entire week. Welcome back to the Rugby League Guru Podcast. You might have seen a post that we put up on our Instagram just in the last hour or so talking about Joey Johns. Now, it's something that I see on Instagram all the time. You know, pages like myself, a heap of others. I saw YKTR post it the other day. I've put it up a few times talking about guys that their careers were cut short with injury. And I quite often see, you know, these posts that say, uh, who's the player that you wish could have gone injury-free throughout their whole season? And you normally get the same sort of answers. Uh, Taniela Tawaki is always a really popular one, completely fair enough. Uh, another one that's always really popular is Timmy Moulton from the West Tigers, never got to fulfill his entire career. Uh, a heap of guys that we see 
all the time they pop up in these same conversations. Another guy that we had on our podcast, of course, Jarrell Yao Yay, another guy that is quite often talking about in this category, which another fantastic shout. you got the Stanley brothers as well. They missed out on an unbelievable amount of rugby league throughout their time. I've heard people say Roger Tuovasashek, he lost that season with the ACL and whatnot. A range of guys that you could put into this category that were just so hampered by injuries. It was just ridiculous. Stevie Matai is another one. I mean, he didn't miss an endless amount of football, but he was always sort of carrying a niggle or something along those lines. So list of these guys that you could put in there is just unbelievable. It's crazy. And for me, the, the standout for me, the guy that I wish could have gone his entire injury career injury-free is, without a doubt, it's Joey Johns. Uh, for me, I, I, I just, I can't see any other reasoning why it wouldn't be Joey. And look, a lot of people consider him to be the best player of all time, and I wouldn't push back on that at all. I have got Cameron Smith as the best, but I've got Joey Johns at second place. And if someone said to me, no, you're wrong, I'd go, okay. Yep, okay, fair enough. Like they're, they're both absolute champion players. I would never push back on anyone saying Joey's the best player of all time. Wouldn't argue it at all because I've got no legs to stand on, nothing at all. I've got the two of them as the two best. For me, I've got Cameron Smith by an absolute hair. And realistically... I think if Joey could have finished his entire career without all these injuries, it could have been him quite easily. I mean, when you have a look at Joey's career and you look at everything he achieved, I'm just going to read some things out to you. Dallium Halfback of the Year, 95, 96, 99, 2002. Four-time Dallium Halfback of the Year, unreal. Dallium Player of the Year, 98, 99, 2002. So in a five-year span between 1998 and 2002, he won it three times. He was the best player in our game three times out of five years, according to the Dallium system. Pretty incredible. Proven Summons Medal, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. For those playing at home, that's the Proven Summons Medal. Five years on the trot. Five years in a row. Simply incredible, especially when you consider at that time the sort of players that were around. Unbelievable. Rugby League Week Player of the Year, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. Once again, five years on the trot being voted as the best player in Rugby League Week, and it should be noted the way that they used to do that system was giving you a rating out of 10 every single week. So you have to be incredibly consistent to win that one year, let alone to win it five years in a row. That is half a decade that Joey won that five years in a row. That's unbelievable. Uh, Golden Boot Player of the Year, which, uh, you know, always a bit of a skeptical award, one that I never really understood how they sort of adjudicated this one. But 99, 2001, so still the best player in the world twice, according to the Golden Boot Award. For me, winning the Daly M's and the Rugby League Week Player of the Year, that one probably stands out for me more than winning that. Clive Churchill Medal, 2001, a sensational effort as well. Now, all of those awards, unbelievable. Simply incredible to have all those things next to your name. I'll tell you what I noticed about all of those. Come pre-2003. Now, for me, 2003 is where the injuries start for Joey. And we are robbed of one of the best finishes to a career I think we're ever going to see, to be honest with you. It would have been unbelievable to see Joey play. And look, from 2003 onwards, uh, the knee injuries, the leg injuries, it was all coming for Joey. It was all starting to fall apart. He was only 29 years old at this stage. The 2003 season kicks off. He's 29 years old. Over the next five seasons before he retires at age 33, he only plays 59 games. Now, you think about Five seasons. Let's say there's 25 in each of those seasons. You take out buys, but then you've got to think Joey's probably playing finals footy realistically. So let's average it out at 25 games. Five times 25, that's 125 potential games he could have played in that time. He played 59 of them. 59. And you've got to think probably at least eight or nine of those games were injury affected. Uh, the vast majority of them, probably 40% of that 59 are probably like when he's getting back into football, coming back from injuries as well. So you're probably not seeing the best Joey there either and you know to play only 59 from 125 games less than half of those games over a five-year span when you're in your 30s 
incredibly unlucky. And this is the reality of rugby league. It's a tough sport. Injuries are going to be a part of it, especially when you like Joey and you play like a back rower. When you've got the skill set of the best halfback ever and you play like a back rower, you tackle like a back rower, you don't hide away from anything. If your forwards aren't winning the ruck, you say, give me the ball, I'm going to win it for us. That's the sort of footballer Joey was. And I've got so much respect for him for that. But obviously his career at the back end of his, you know, back end of his career, severely hampered by injuries, severely. Played less than half the games of his last five seasons. Now, for me, I think this is incredibly important when we look back at the career of Joey because the first 10 years was unbelievable. I just read all the awards out that he won. I mean, it was a, essentially an off year if he wasn't winning a Dalian medal or Rugby League Week Player of the Year. He started in 93. The 11 years until 2003, I mean, he was the Rugby League, Rugby League Week Player of the Year half of the time. It is unbelievable. He won two premierships in that time as well. He won a Clive Churchill medal. It is unreal, and he was, you know, probably to some extent was unlucky not to win the Clive Churchill medal in 97, of course, played that grand final with a punctured lung and came up with the match-winning grand final. One of the greatest moments in rugby league history for me. We're going to be talking about that, that, that over the next few days. It's going to play a role in something we're going to talk about. But, I mean, this is in the first 10 years of his career. Unbelievable, Joey. Just incredible. And then misses the vast majority of the back end of his career. And look, I just want to point out to you as well that as much as he was injury-infected this entire time, you got to remember, 2005, he comes back in Origin 2 and plays one of the most convincing two games in an Origin series we have ever seen. Origin 2, 2005, Trent Barrett gets ruled out. He gets called in on, like, the Sunday night, and he absolutely brains it. you got to remember, Joey hadn't played a game leading into that. He'd been out for, like, eight weeks or something. He'd been up in Brisbane rehab course and then came straight into the Origin arena and absolutely brained it. So... There is no doubt whatsoever that Joey still had a lot more to offer. you got to remember, Joey, you know, 2003, these injuries start. The year before that, he won the Dalian medal. Yeah, the year before that, he was the Clive Churchill medalist. And the five-year span before that, he was the Rugby League Week player of the year. I think we forget. We we lost the absolute golden days of Andrew Johns. And look, I know people are going to say, oh, you know, we saw the golden days. We saw the best of Joey. I'm not sure if we did. I'm really not sure if we did. I really do think that some of these players, they play their absolute best footy post-30 because they've seen everything. There's nothing that they haven't seen post-30. And I'm going to use two examples. One of them is a more recent guy, Cooper Cronk. Now, if you have a look at Cooper Cronk's career, unbelievable, yeah? If you look at Cooper Cronk's career until he gets to 29, it's a really impressive career, no doubt about it. But if you look at the seasons 29 on, from when he's age 29 on, last five seasons of his career, he plays 120 games. So, actually more than double of Joey's games that he played in the last five years. In that time, Cooper Cronk, he plays in four grand finals. He wins three premierships. He wins premierships with different clubs, and he becomes the first man to win three premierships in a row since Peter Sterling in the early 80s. That's what Cooper Cronk did in the last few years of his career. Now, you think about as good as Cooper Cronk was, a sensational player, I mean, the little sample size that we saw of Joey when he played Origin in 05, I think that's probably better than you know, any football Cooper Cronk probably ever played, instinct-wise, ability-wise. I mean, it was unbelievable. It's like football we've never seen any other half play like, realistically. Joey managed to do that in that time. Now, Cooper Cronk obviously played in a different era. He was 10 years after Joey. Very different halfback, completely different halfback. I understand that completely. But the next guy that I would probably put closest to Joey is the guy that played alongside him for the vast majority of his career, that played against him the vast majority of their career. Their careers were very side-by-side. Joey debuted a couple of years after Freddie, but they played during the same era. They went head-to-head during the same era. Um, Brad Fittler, he, in his last five years, 29 onwards, Freddie played 129 games. 129 games. He was in the 2000 Premiership. 
the 2002, sorry, he's in the 2000 grand final, the 2002 grand final, the 2003 grand final, the 2004 grand final. He went to four out of five grand finals. The grand final that he didn't go to, the only reason why he didn't is because Joey knocked him out in the prelim final. He only won one of those premierships, to be fair. But Freddie, he was a top three player that entire five years in the NRL, in my opinion. He was unbelievable in his last five seasons because Freddie had seen everything. There is nothing that Freddie hadn't seen, and he was able to dominate games from start to finish and pick and choose when he would go and win them. I've heard Brett Finch talk about, and I spoke to him about it on my podcast as well, that, you know, they'd be in a really close game. They, you know, it'd be coming down to the end, and with 10 minutes to go, Freddie would go, hey, just give me the ball. Left foot, left foot, left foot, chip, bang, try. And Finch would sort of look at him and go, fuck, why didn't you just do that earlier? Why, why did you wait all this time? Why did you put me under all this pressure if you knew you could win it whenever the hell you wanted to? He's just that sort of a footballer, and Joey was exactly the same. Joey was no different. Joey post-30 would have been an absolute monster. He would have been so much better than the Joey we saw pre-30, in my opinion. He really would have been. He understood the game better than what he ever had. You saw him walk into 2005 Origin Series with no games under his belt and absolutely dominate. I mean, I think we have missed out on so much here. And look, when you look at tries that these guys scored in their careers, I mean, it doesn't really say much, but I don't have the stats as far as try assists post-30 and whatnot. But if you have a look at Cooper Cronk, now, in his last five seasons, as I said, he played 120 games. Uh, he scored 35 tries. So he scored a try, on average, every three and a half games. Um, Joey did exactly the same thing. Now, Joey, he scored 16 from his last 59 games in his last five seasons at an average of 3.5. Yeah, one try every 3.5 games. I mean, unbelievable. And you know, I understand that you know these guys are more about try assists and what they do off the ball, but... I mean, just that alone, you've got to remember, Cooper Cronk was always in star-studded teams. Cooper Cronk was going to a grand final every single year. Joey was playing in a Newcastle team that really struggled without him. He was always coming back from injury. He was always sort of struggling to get back from injury or getting injured during games and missing out on opportunities to score tries in them. It's unbelievable what Joey's done here. But he played 129 games in his last five seasons. Amazingly scored 50 tries, uh, which at an average of a try every two and a half games, which is unbelievable from Freddie. And I probably wouldn't expect Joey to score as many tries as Freddie, but my God, he wouldn't have been far off. He really wouldn't have been. You keep in mind, Freddie was in a star-studded team as well. Still, for Freddie to score a try every two and a half games, John's to score on every three and a half games, I mean, it's pretty impressive considering all the injuries that Joey went through and the team that he was playing with. I think it's unbelievable. I really do think that we missed the absolute best years of Joey. The years that we saw were incredible, no doubt about it. I would never, ever question that. I would never say he shouldn't be an immortal or anything like that. But can you imagine if we did see the last five years? Can you imagine what he would have achieved? As I said, we've only got a small sample size, and it's 2005 State of Origin, where he played his best footy for those few weeks, and he was the best player in the world, and it wasn't even close. It was not even close. We saw him play for the Kangaroos in 05 as well. What a game that was. Absolutely blew the Kiwis off the park, and Joey was on fire. All we've got is this little sample size of him not being injured, playing on the big stages in rep footy, and he's the best player on the field by a country mile. All of this whilst being surrounded by injuries the entire time. Telling you, I know there's a lot of guys like Tani Tawaki, Tim Moulton, Jarrell Yaya, these sort of guys that would have been all-time talents, no doubt about it. But I'll tell you what, the all-time talent that is Joey, the immortal... Mate, he could have been the best player by far and away, and it wouldn't have even been close if he could have played these few years. You look at what Cooper Cronk achieved, you look at what what Brad Fittler achieved, it was a lot. It was a lot, I get that. But tell me Joey wasn't capable of doing that stuff. Tell me Joey wouldn't have been capable of making it to a couple of grand finals, winning another few Dally M's. The years before he got injured, he was the five-time Rugby League Week Player of the Year in a row, those five years leading up to his first injury. 
He already had a Clive Church. He was unlucky not to have two. I mean, it is unbelievable. He won the Dally M in 2002, and then these injuries started. We never got to see the best out of Joey again. It's unbelievable. I, I'm really just blown away by these numbers and how good Joey was. I think we underrate him incredibly. And, I mean, you have a look at those last few seasons of his career. We go back to 2003. He played 16 games. Um, he won 10 of them. So whenever Joey's there, they're winning. Uh, you look at 2004, he played three games. They won two of them. You go to 2005, they played 16 games. They won eight of them, still at 50%. You go to 2006, he played 22 games. Played a fair whack of games there. They won them at 58%. So a winning record again with Joey. The year he, the year he played the 22 games, he scored nine tries. Well, he's almost going to try every second game. And then you go to 2007 where he played two games. They win one of them, they lose the other. I mean, even in this time of injury where his career is hampered so much, it is just ridiculous. He's still got a winning record every single year when he's on the field. Unbelievable from Joey. And you've got to remember, half the time when he's on the field in these seasons, he's coming back from injury. So he's not in full, his full self. He doesn't have the same match fitness. I, I think I think it honestly is amazing what Joey achieved and what he could have achieved in that time. So next time you see one of those posts, just keep Joey in mind. Because, my God, it is incredible what he could have achieved if he was allowed to fulfill his entire career, which was on fire until the moment he got injured. He could have been the Rugby League Week Player of the Year for another seven years. You know, he was just that sort of a footballer. Sorry, seven years in total. He won it five years on the trot and then got injured. It could have been absolutely anything. Just keep Joey in mind next time you're talking with your mates about careers that were ruined by injuries. Because Joey, as much as his career wasn't ruined, my God, we might have only seen... 70% 70% of what Joey's career could have been, to be perfectly honest with you. We saw Cooper Cronk. He finished his premier, his career with three premierships in a row at two different clubs. God knows what Joey could have done with the Newcastle Knights. If you take 05 Joey in State of Origin and put him in the NRL, good luck. Good luck. You can put 12 planks of wood next to Joey. They're going to win. He's an absolute freakish footballer. At his peak, he was incredible. Dare I say, we might not have even seen his peak, to be honest with you. I think we saw little snippets of it in Origin and in Test Football in 2005. But outside of that, we never saw the fully mature Joey Johns. The Joey Johns that had seen everything, was ready for anything, could handle any situation in an instant. Imagine how slow the game would have been for Joey by the time he was 31, 32. Could you imagine it just moving around him in slow motion, him just picking teams to pieces? He did it in the State of Origin Arena and the Test Arena. Imagine what he could have done at club level. Just ridiculous to think about. I honestly think it's something that is so underrated when we talk about the career of Andrew Johns. It's ridiculous. G'day, guys. Obviously, the biggest story, or one of the biggest stories to come out of the weekend was Lachlan Lewis at halftime against the South Sydney Rabbitohs as they're walking off the field. Uh, a little bit of a UFC throw on, of course, South Sydney Rabbitohs 5'8", Cody Walker. Um, and look, it's been two weeks in a row now. The Canterbury Bulldogs are sort of... I don't know if you'd say off-field stuff, but sort of irrelevant stuff has sort of dominated the news. Of course, we had Sam Walker against them. He ran backwards 90 metres. We spoke about that for three days, for an eternity, for what it seemed. Uh, Now it feels like we've been talking about Lachlan Lewis for a couple of days. Now... Look, I, I just think it was a bit of a brain explosion, to be honest with you. We heard rumours about um, that it came out that Cody Walker <laughs> said he should go back to reserve grade, which, I mean, uh, like all the South Sydney boys have come out and said, oh, that wasn't said, blah, blah, blah. But I mean... Even if it was or it wasn't, I mean, really not much in that. Let's be perfectly honest here. I mean, compared to some of the sledges we've heard in rugby league, I mean, that's almost a pat on the back, realistically. So, um, But according to the Rabbitohs boys, that's not what was said. I'd love to know what was said because it's a really strange moment. Like when you look at 
the body language of Cody Walker and of Lachlan Lewis. It's a bit strange. They're both sort of giggling. They're both sort of laughing. There's not really a heap of emotion in it. So I would love to know what Cody Walker did say because you can see Lachlan Lewis, he is giggling. He is laughing. Um, even uh, it's not it's not complete anger that overcomes him. So, you know, for me in rugby league now for someone to throw a punch, I mean, you have to have that much aggression coming out of you because it's going to cost your team. It's going to cost your side. It could quite possibly, depending on who you are, cost your spot in your team if you cost that game for them because you can't keep yourself intact. And, you know, it makes me think, you know, I I think moving forward, the only time we're going to really see punches is probably when something is said about um, a wife, a mother, children, sister, these sort of things that are definitely stepping over the line because I think players are well aware of how much it's going to cost them. I think coaches are well aware of how much it's going to cost their team and they would be drilling into them that we don't need this. We cannot allow ourselves to play on with 12 or whatever it is, especially the way that they're now simbitting and sending guys off. I just don't think we're going to see too many guys step over that line to force guys to throw punches and whatnot. And I think that's been evident in the last year or two. I mean, we had Payne Haas and Tino in origin. Obviously, that's a heightened stage, so there's a lot of aggression. There's a lot of... Um, there's just so much more energy going into that club level. I really don't think we're going to see too many proper stinks. We're going to see guys grab each other. We're going to see guys get close to each other and push each other and hold their fists up, not really do anything, though. But this moment was very strange because something obviously got to Lachlan Lewis. I don't know if he was just trying to get under the skin of Cody Walker. I'm not sure if that was just the ploy because he sort of did it giggling and laughing, but the way that he sort of twisted him over his body. I mean, if I was Wayne Bennett, my number one concern would have been, you know, you're twisting Cody Walker over his own body when he's not expecting it, when he's not bracing for it as well. So, I mean, there could have been there could have been a knee injury. There could have been a shoulder injury there. There, there, there could have been a lot of things that could have gone on in that moment. Thankfully, it didn't. Um, and I, you know, I'd love to know what Cody did. So I'd love to know if there was even anything said realistically. I think just think Lock and Lewis, he's a bit of a different cat. He's a little bit out there. He's always been a little bit out there. Let's be perfectly honest with you. Like, even the way that he plays football is a little bit unorthodox. The way that he kicks a ball is a little bit unorthodox. It's like he's a statue and he's kicking a football. He just freezes. It's he, He's a very unorthodox sort of character. I keep using that word to describe him. I think it's the best way to describe Lachlan Lewis. And I think this moment was a little bit out there as well. I mean, considering, you know, they're playing the South Sydney Rabbitohs. The Rabbitohs were at about a dollar and twelve cents to win this game. The Canterbury Bulldogs are well and truly in that game, like well and truly in the contest of that game when they probably shouldn't be, according to all the bookies, according to just about everyone, they shouldn't have been in that game. And we see him come up with this play. I just don't... It just made no sense to me. As I've said a few times, I'd love to know what was said. And, you know, I said last week... um yeah, look, he was the hero against the Roosters. They still lost that game, but he got them back into it, came out with a couple of big plays. One big play he came up with was kicking the ball on second or third tackle from 20 metres out, and he managed to get to it first to set up in the end goals, and he scored. And the amount of Bulldog fans I had messaging me saying, how are we re-signing this guy? And look, I understand that play was unreal, but, I mean, if he goes for that play and the ball bounces an extra metre before it sits up and it goes dead, I'm sorry, I, 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 do you all want to re-sign him? Or is it all of a sudden looking Lewis, oh, he kicked it on third tackle. Why the hell would he do that? This is the game that we're in. Why would he kick it on third tackle and kick it dead? I mean, there's, there's it, it was a good play because it worked out for him. But was it a smart rugby league play? I'm not sure about that. And I think this is the sort of stuff that has dominated Lachlan Lewis's career. I've been watching him in reserve grade this year as well. And I mean, it's been more of the same. He's not overly consistent. He's not overly reliable. He does pull out these games occasionally where he does extraordinary things. I remember him kicking a field goal. I think it might have even been on his debut. He's put in a a number of unreal kicks, but he's also made a lot of mistakes in first grade and been unreliable for quite some time. And I had people messaging me after the Roosters game saying, why are we re-signing him? And I mean, 
Jeez, I said at the time, he's not reliable. He's not He's not a guy that you can rely on in big moments. And within seven days, here they are against the South Sydney Rabbitohs, a game they have no right to win, a game they have no right to be in the contest of against a team like South Sydney, let's be honest here. They're in it at half time, and he decides to attack Cody Walker and wrestle him to the ground as they're walking off. I mean, it is just stupid sort of stuff. And this is the reason why I wouldn't be re-signing him. I just, I think it's crazy. And you know what? He played a good game against South Sydney. No doubt about it. He played a good game. And I, you know, I had, I had a couple of messages about how, oh, I love the passion that he brings. And you know what? I don't mind the passion he brings either, but I'm sorry, that's not passion. That is stupidity. That is complete and utter stupidity. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. I mean, why, what, what, what on earth would push him to do that in that moment? You could see the Bulldogs players, they were looking around going, what the fuck is happening as well? It just made no sense whatsoever. It was a selfish play where he let himself get carried away in the moment. And what, I mean, poor Trent Barrett sitting up there must have just been going, what on earth is happening? What on earth is this guy doing? He's got us in this game. He is playing well. He's played well the last two weeks and he comes up with this. With all due respect, I'm all for players trying to get under each other's skin. You all know, oh, I've been a huge fan of Tyson Gamble. I really love him. I love the way he goes about it. his footy. It's unreal. I had a couple of messages this week saying Tyson Gamble's the same as Lock and Lewis. I don't believe he is. Lock and Lewis is also a lot further into his career. He should have got this shit out of his game. I understand he's passionate. I get it. But you've got to be smart with your passion. I feel like Tyson Gamble is smarter with his passion, and he backs it up every single time. Yeah, he stands up and he delivers. He comes up with smart plays. He's able to do this sort of stuff, then bring himself back into the game. He he did it against the Sharks a couple of weeks ago. You saw the Jesse Ramian play. He was then able to lay on a few tries and play his role in a team. Lachlan Lewis, I don't trust him to do this. I really don't. He's proven over a long period of time that you can't trust him to hang in games for full 80 minutes to deliver when the Canterbury Bulldogs need it. I understand he hasn't been in a great team. I get that 100%. But, I mean, he goes back and plays to that Mounties team who are doing pretty damn well, and I see more of the same. I don't see him being a reliable character. I don't see him being a future guy that you can build an NRL team around in the halves. I think Canterbury have made the right decision by not re-signing him. And I think that play on the weekend sort of sums up who Lachlan Lewis is. He's a bit of an unorthodox character. He's a bit of a weird cat. You don't really know what he's going to do next. He doesn't really know what he's going to do next. I mean, there was a try that he set up when he came back on for, for um, Ockenbore. I mean, the ball got offloaded to, offloaded to him. He juggled it in the air, then slapped it to his winger. It was fine. Play on. I'm happy with it. But once again, just a bit of an unorthodox sort of thing that he's got in his game. And there's nothing wrong with being unorthodox, yeah. But for me... He's unorthodox. It's not overly hard to handle. There are little moments where he pulls off things that are unreal, but it's not like he's a Tyrone Peachy or he's a Cody Walker where his unorthodox is just impossible to read or a Joey Manu. He's probably the best example. I would call him unorthodox when he plays fullback because you never know what he's going to do, but he's just so damaging and so powerful and so fast. I don't really put Lock and Lewis in that same sort of caliber. He's unorthodox as in Canterbury doesn't know what he's going to do and it's a little bit of chaos and the whole team doesn't know really know what's going on. That's where I put him, and I wouldn't be re-signing him. I think they've made the right call. And I think that that moment the other day was just batshit crazy. I don't understand why he could possibly do it. And, you know, at the time, I sort of thought, geez, is it really a sin bin? I mean, and, and look, by the book, I still sort of stand by it. Can you sin bin someone as they're walking off at halftime? I mean, it's not in the context of the game. He didn't throw a punch. Um, I mean, if they just grabbed each other and yelled at each other, then tossed each other away, would they get Sinbin there? I don't know. If he did that during the game, yeah, if there was a moment in the game where there was just a turnover and they were having words with each other and they wrestled each other to the ground, do they get Sinbin? I'm not sure if they do. 
A really interesting moment. I don't disagree with him being Simbin. I think that if you're going to grab someone like that from behind when they're not expecting to drag them to the ground, risk them getting injured, you deserve to be punished. No doubt about it. But I wonder if the rule is you're actually allowed to Simbin someone at halftime. I think it's a really interesting one, and I think it's one of those rules that we are probably never prepared for because we probably never expected a guy as they're walking off the field to wrestle another guy to the floor as they're smiling and sort of giggling at each other. It's just a bit ridiculous. Um, and it's just, it sums up Lockie Lewis for me. It really does. I like him. I think he's got ability. I think he's got England written on his forehead, and I think he would do really well in England as well. I just don't think he's quite cut to make it in the NRL. That's just my personal opinion. I stand by Canterbury's decision. I think they've got to move in another direction. I think he has got something to offer in rugby league. I'm just not sure if it's in the NRL. And that moment for me on the weekend, that really stands out to me. Um, Poor old Trent Barrett. I mean, imagine watching that. Your team hangs in the balance and that happens and he gets sent 10 in the bin like a really, really tough pill to swallow. And let's be honest here, Canterbury, even though they they had 12 on the field for the first 10 minutes, second half, they hung in the contest. I think they conceded one try. South Sydney ended up winning that game. I think they won by eight points. But, I mean, all things considered, I think it's a moment that if Lachlan Lewis doesn't do that, I think there's a really good chance they could have won that game of football. Only eight points of difference. They scored six points while they were off the field. I mean, I think there's a fair argument that if Lachlan Lewis doesn't come up with that play, they probably win. And the other thing, which I never understand, why on earth are people trying to get under Cody Walker's skin? I'm sorry, is there any player in this competition that responds better to someone trying to niggle them? Cody Walker is the absolute king of it. If one of my, if I was playing Cody Walker and one of my guys was trying to get under his skin, I'd say, what on earth are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you pissing this bloke off? Why are you poking the bear? We know that whenever someone has a go at Cody Walker, he puts on tries really quickly. He absolutely loves getting dragged into a corner and getting put into an individual contest with someone else, and he'll let you know about it. And he did. You know, he, he set up AJ for, for a try once Lock and Lewis was off. He was more fired up than what he was before Lock and Lewis went off the field. I've seen it happen a heap of times. I saw Cooper Cronk do it to him last year, get up in his face, and Cody Walker absolutely blitzed them. I mean, I don't understand why anyone does this. It blows me away. If there's one guy in this competition that I'm not trying to piss off because I think I'm going to get under their skin, I mean, it's Cody Walker. We've seen him on a number of occasions. People try and get under his skin. Cody Walker comes out on top. I've got him in my super coach team. As soon as I see someone shove him, someone push him, someone giggle at him, someone point at him, I go, beautiful. Here comes 60 super coach points in the next 25 minutes. He's going to explode. And he always does. I don't understand why Lachlan Lewis would think, hey, I'm going to be the guy that's going to get under Cody Walker's skin. No, you're not. You never were going to be the guy that's going to get under Cody Walker's skin. The best way for you to get under Cody Walker's skin is to keep playing good footy, not to do shit like that at halftime. And look, as much as Cody Walker, the South Sydney players are saying he didn't say go back to reserve grade, I guarantee you that's what Cody Walker's thinking. He's looking at this guy going, you're not NRL standard. You're not in the same ballpark as me. What on earth are you doing? And Cody Walker didn't have to say it, but I'll tell you right now, he's thinking it. He won't say that. South Sydney won't say that. The boys won't say that. But let's be honest, here he is. 100% he is. And there's nothing wrong with that as well. Cody Walker, he's, he's taken his game to a new elite level over the last few years. And if a Lachlan Lewis was coming up to me and doing the same thing and I was Cody Walker, I'd be thinking, who the hell is this bloke? It wouldn't rattle me at all. And if it did rattle me a little bit, I'm Cody Walker. I know what I'm going to do over the next 20, 25 minutes. I've got weapons all around me. I'm one of the best natural ball players in our game. The game has never been suited more to Cody Walker than right now. If if I'm a coach and any of my guys were getting under the skin of Cody Walker in the first half, I'd say to them at halftime, what the fuck are you doing? Why do you think you're going to be the guy that's going to get this guy off his game? No one's done it before. We, we, like, surely we've learnt this lesson, haven't we? Surely we've learnt this lesson with Cody Walker. Just let him go about his business and hope he's quiet. You're not going to get under his skin and get the better of him. You see him as well whenever he gets injured. 
Yeah, whenever he gets slightly injured and it's in a tackle or whatever, he gives the other player an absolute filthy. Even if it's not their fault, it might be a complete accident, but he gives them a filthy and he remembers it. And you can see the next few sets he'll hobble around, but then he'll find his front and he will just start to dominate again. I really think this is a silly play from Lachlan Lewis. I think it was a silly play to do it at halftime. I think it was a silly play to do it to Cody Walker. I think that you could see in his emotional reaction that Cody Walker obviously didn't say anything too bad. He obviously didn't say anything too bad to him, if anything. I'm actually questioning looking at it if Cody Walker really said much to him, to be perfectly honest with you. And if it is that the South Sydney boys are defending Cody and trying, you know, to, to maybe not, not not make it look as bad, he said something about reserve grade. I mean, cop it on the chin, kid. You get much worse. You will get much worse when moving forward. I'll be shocked if you haven't had much worse. He's obviously the nephew of Wally Lewis. I wouldn't be shocked if there was some sort of comment there. But, I mean, eh. <laughs> I mean, someone said to me, oh, you're not as good as an immortal. Okay, sweet. Um, I mean, who's getting offended by that? I just, I think it's a very strange scenario. I think that if Cody Walker said something worse to Lachlan Lewis, he wouldn't have reacted with a smile and a giggle and bear hug him. I think he would have just flat out punched him. He didn't, he didn't have that emotional reaction straight away. I don't think it could have been anything too bad. You saw the way that Cody Walker deal with it after the game when he was talking to Matty Johns. He giggled and laughed through the thing. I think he knew it was a huge overreaction by Lachlan Lewis and that he looked like an idiot. If Cody Walker would have said something bad, I think he would have been a little bit worried about the backlash from it. He didn't. It seemed like a complete non-event. Look, I understand people like Lachlan Lewis. So, so do I. I think he has got a little bit to offer. I don't think it's in the NRL, and I don't think it's at the Canterbury Bulldogs. I think they've made the right decision. And I think that his actions the other night, it probably just doubled down on the Canterbury Bulldogs that, you know what, we have made the right call here, in my opinion. I had a great question sent in to me from Joe on my Instagram page. And Joe said, mate, I'm looking to get into sports cards. What do you advise going for in the NRL cards market? And look, mate, the, the NRL cards market, it's not really the same as your um, American sports, your NFL, your basketball, e- e- even your soccer league over there. The s- soccer stickers, I know that they're getting very big as well. The NRL market isn't quite as high. And to be honest with you, um, as you guys know, I've always been pretty keen on footy cards. In the lockdown last year, I got right into it. I was opening up those footy cards for you guys. You've seen that I've been opening up a heap of footy cards recently. I've still got hundreds of packets sitting here in my studio that um, I use for content and whatnot. And look, for, for me right now, the cards game in Australia, it's not heading in a great direction, if I'm perfectly honest with you. I think if you have a look at the Elite Series that's about to come out, I think in August, um, there's just so many goddamn cards now. It's ridiculous. Now, you look at two or three years ago, I mean, you would collect the key signature signature cards or the young gun signature cards, and there might be a black and a white version. So, for example, one that I've got is Victor Radley. I've got a white and a black rookie card from him, signed by him. So, there was a white one. I think it was out of 50, and I think the black one's out of 130. So, I've got both of those. So, that white one, that's a pretty special one. He obviously has won two premierships now. Uh, He's one of the best lock forwards in the game. So, that's a card that I'm really excited about having. And for me, personally, that card means a lot to me, because you all know I love Victor Radley. Now, you look at the cards now and all the signature cards. I think in the Elite Series this year, there's five different varieties of cards. So, for example, you might get like a Jack Whiten red, blue, yellow, black, you know, and like the red might be out of 100, the blue might be out of 70. I'm just sort of spitballing these numbers off the top of my head, but it's something that I've noticed more and more with these cards is that it is simply just a money grab. It is just ridiculous. And I, I kind of think they're starting to kill the hobby, to be honest with you. It's something that I'm seriously worried about. I got right into this whole cards business and 
you know, trying to turn over better cards and trying to razz them. A razz is where you put up a card, you know, in a Facebook group and you say, oh, there's 100 spots. Each spot costs, you know, $2.50. So it, all, all 100 spots get filled. You might be someone that buys 10 of those spots. So you buy 10 spots. Each spot's $2.50. means that I get $25 from you to have a 1 in 10 shot of winning that card. It's randomized. The winner takes it. I got right into that for a while there. It was great fun. Geez, I had some fun with it. There was cards that, you know, the real legend sort of signature cards that I turned over. I know that I had one. Um, I had one. Who was it? Alan Langer. I had an Alan Langer car that I brought for two hundred. I razzed it for about four hundred and fifty. Yeah, which was you know a hundred spots at four dollars fifty each. These cards are so rare. There's only a certain amount of them. Alan Langer. He's you know one of the all time great legends. It was in a nice case and everything. So I made about two hundred and fifty bucks off that. I did that with a few signature cards and whatnot. Uh, but you know now and now it's just getting harder and harder, especially for the really keen collectors. I mean. You know, like, just just going back to the Jack White example, there are a lot of very keen Canberra Raiders fans out there that collect footy cards. I think the Canberra Raiders, they probably have the biggest following when it comes to cards, along with the Broncos. The Broncos have lost a bit of traction recently, but a lot of Canberra Raiders fans are very keen card collectors, and some of them that are willing to spend a lot of money. Now, they had... Ori Daly signature card, a legend card that came out last year. And I mean, it was like the White Whale. It was the same as their John Bateman signature card. That was incredibly hard to get. Um, that was only out of 100. So, you know, like they were so rare to find and they were so good to have. Uh, and there was so much, the price of them just went up and up and up because there's so many Raiders fans out there that collect cards that were willing to pay big money for them. Um, whereas some of your other teams, and it obviously depends on the player, that is that is selected from each team. So, you know, like the South Sydney one a couple of years ago, the South Sydney Rabbitohs, they've got a big following as well. I think they had Braden Burns, who wasn't really as popular as some of their other cards they have. They had Adam Reynolds last year. That one was hugely popular. A lot of Rabbitohs fans very keen on getting their hands on Adam Reynolds. I think they had a Cam Murray card a couple of years ago as well. So it comes down to the person on the card and where their career is at as well. Now, if I was to say anything to you, I would say... Go for the young guns. I would be going for those sort of rookie cards. So as I said, I don't really collect that many cards anymore. The main guy that I always collected was Roger Tuivasa-Shek. Now I sort of, I sort of fell into that because I, I managed to just hit two or three really rare cards of Roger that were only limited to about fifteen in existence. I managed to hit them, and I thought, fuck. You know, if I'm going to collect someone, I might as well dive into Roger. And I'll be honest with you, I was sort of getting over it because it was costing me a good whack of coin to be able to collect all these Roger Tuivasa-Shek cards. And then he announced he was going to Union. Now, my hope always was that Roger would be able to win a premiership for the New Zealand Warriors. As rogue as that is, as out there as that is, they've built a fantastic squad now, and I think it would be very interesting if he did stay. Um, but obviously, all this COVID stuff has happened. He's now going to New Zealand rugby, and I've got to be honest with you, as much as I've been collecting him for four or five years, I've got every card from when he started at the Roosters to right now when he's at the New Zealand Warriors. I've got to tell you, I was kind of stoked because it meant that I could stop collecting Roger Tuivasa-Shek cards, which were costing me you know, probably close, close to two grand a year. It, it is ridiculous when your guy that you're collecting is one of the main guys and you try and get all those cards and complete a collection because it is so expensive now. And I'm very nervous. They've got the elites coming at the end of this year. In August, I think it is, sorry. And, um, you know, if Roger Tuivasa-Shek is a signature card there, as I just said with the Jack White example, I mean, there are going to be so many Roger Tuivasa-Shek's cards to collect that I'm going to have to make a decision. Do I want to complete this collection that goes for about 10 years or so or do I just give up on this one and save myself 
you know, two odd grand there. So, um, and that's the difficult decision that a lot of people are having to make. But if I was you, mate, and you were trying to make a little bit of money on these things, I would be going for the young guns. Yeah, I'd be going for the young guns that you think have huge potential, that are limited numbered cards, that are probably signed cards. So you think about, you know, if you were to have, let's say, all the Sam Walker cards. Like, Sam Walker, he, he's only got one footy card out at the moment, yeah? And it's one that... um. It's one that uh, NRL traders do. They do a player in focus each week of the NRL. So they pick one player who did well that week. They make a card out of them, and you have to order it. It costs about $20. But what happens is they open it for 24 hours. You order this card. So if you were to order the Sam Walker card, for example, and then it gives you a number a numbered card of how many people ordered it and what numbered your your one is. So, for example, Sam Walker in round eight, I believe that was the game against Newcastle that he did really, really well in. They made the first ever Sam Walker card for that game. So I brought one of them. I think you'd be crazy not to if you're a cards collector. That is officially the first ever... Sam Walker card that has been made in rugby league. Yeah, so massive there. I got number 134 of 153. So the first ever Sam Walker card that has been made, there's only 154 of them. I brought it for like 20 bucks. Now you think about Sam Walker goes on to have an unbelievable career. He's got a, he's got a lot ahead of him, of course, and he's got a lot of obstacles he needs to overcome. But let's say on the really high end, he becomes one of the best halfbacks we've seen, which, I mean, he's got the ability. He's playing at the Roosters. I mean, I'm not saying he will be. But that that path is definitely laid for a Sam Walker to potentially be able to do it. For 20 bucks there, I mean, if we look back in 15 times and he's finished his, his career with a couple of premierships, you know, and, and I'm not saying he will be. Don't message me and say, how could you say that? Let's say he enters the immortal debate. He's right up there with the best of them, which, you know, is going to be incredibly difficult. But there are going to be guys that are going to do it. I mean, if I said this to you about a Cam Smith card in 2002, people would have blown up and said, what are you talking about? But that's the reality of some of these careers how they go. He's in a good system. He's got all the talent in the world. He's got rugby league pedigree inside him as well. He's a competitor. I mean, getting a Sam Walker car for 20 bucks, then in 20 years' time, if he is in the immortal debate, all of a sudden you've got, you know, I've got one of the 151st ever cards of Sam Walker that was made. And you just don't know where the hobby's going to go from here. I will tell you this, though. If you're trying to make a really quick buck and turn them over quickly, it's going to be difficult. It's very tough. Yeah, you are sort of looking at the long game. I've probably got... Jeez, I want to say four or five thousand dollars worth of Roger Tuivasa-Shek cards sitting there. I'm hoping that long term he potentially comes back to the NRL and maybe he can achieve something after the All Blacks journey. And I sort of think, imagine if Roger does come back and he wins a premiership. I mean, all of a sudden he becomes the most valuable guy in New Zealand rugby league history, one of the most valuable guys in rugby league history. All of a sudden those cards they could be worth something. But it is something that I really enjoyed hunting after those cards. The links you have to go to to get these cards, especially some that are only limited to like fifteen. Like I. I've got two or three Roger cards that are limited to under 15. And I mean, when when you think about that long-term, you think about the amount of boxes of cards that are never opened, the amount of boxes of cards that are sitting in storage somewhere, the amount of boxes of cards that are brought by people who might be New Zealand Warrior fans, who might be general fans, they get a Roger Tovar check and they just collect them. They don't trade, they don't sell them, they're not part of the online presence, so you never see those cards again. The amount of cards that are, you know that are brought by parents for their kids as they come home from the servo, that those kids get it, and you're never going to see that card again. It's going to be damaged, it's going to be ruined, it's going to be lost eventually, yeah? So there are so many of these cards that are so hard to find. The, the Roger Tuivasa-Shek one that I've got that's out of 15, I've only ever seen four more of those, yeah? I've only ever seen four more of them in existence, yeah? There's only 15 of them. I've got one of them. There's only 14 more out there, and I've only seen four other ones, yeah? So there's another 10 of those Roger Tuivasa-Shek cards that I've never seen, and I have been obviously so 
searching for Roger Tuivasa-Shek cards for a long time now. So every single Facebook group, I've got my filters and everything set. Whenever there's a Roger card or his name's mentioned on those page, I, I, I get a little tab that comes up. Only ever seen five of them in existence, including the one I've got. So there's another 10 out there somewhere. There's probably a couple still sitting in boxes in a factory somewhere in a warehouse. Someone's storage. There's probably a couple of kids that have got them that they're never to be seen again. There's probably other collectors that know how rare they are and, and they've just pocketed them, never to show them on social media or on Facebook in any of these groups or anything. So... You know, th- these can be really hard to get, and it is good fun chasing them. It is a real journey. It's good fun. You, you meet a lot of really good people as well. But as far as money-making goes, mate, some of the names that I would be looking at, I would be definitely be looking at Sam Walker. He'd probably be number one for me. I think Harry Grant, he would be right up there. Uh, I'd probably have those two at the very top. Reese Walsh, I think he's going to be a really popular guy moving forward as well. He's one to keep an eye on. Um who else could you go for? I, I always like Victor Radley. He's a guy that, for me, he's already won two premierships. He's going to be at the Roosters. I, I think he's going to be a club captain there eventually. He's a local junior. I think he's going to be worth a little bit moving forward. Obviously, your Cam Munsters, your Ryan Pappenhausens, these sort of guys. You've got to look at the clubs they're in, the systems they're going to be playing in, what they're going to achieve. Of course, you know Cam Munster's going to play Origin for the next six or seven years as well. Like You've got to take all these things into consideration. But I would be looking at the young guns, and I'd be looking at someone that you know, you might think is going to be a real star. Like, you might think Reese Walsh in 10 years' time is going to be the best player in this competition. Collect Reese Walsh cards. You know, he hasn't had a card as well yet, but he had a rookie card that came out a few weeks ago. In round 11, he played a really good game, same as the Sam Walker one. So I grabbed one of those. I got number 85 out of 112. So there's only 112 of those Reese Walsh cards made. There was a Harry Grant one that was made last year, and I dived all over that like a wet sock. I was just into it straight away. Uh, That one was only limited to about 90 people from memory. I've got that one filed away. There was a Stephen Crichton one I I grabbed on that as well. Uh, You remember how keen I was on him last year. So as soon as he got his first card that came out, I was all over that. But you need to have a look at the um, at the range that's coming out in the elite cards and have a look at who you want to target. There's a master set at the moment. I think this year it's Darius Boyd. For me, I think that's a pretty poor selection. I don't think too many people are going to be really keen to chase Darius Boyd cards from his whole career. As much as it was fantastic, he's not a very well-liked sort of guy, you know what I mean? Whereas last year, they had Billy Slater. Completely different kettle of fish. Those Slater cards are worth a good bit of coin. You've got to think about, too, at the back end of careers. For example... Cameron Smith cards from last year, his last ever season, he won the premiership. I believe there was a jersey card where they take a little snippet of one of his jerseys and put it as part of a card. That was a case card that was worth a lot of money. I think there was a Cameron Smith one, and then there was a Chanel Harris-Tavita one. Now, if you think Chanel Harris-Tavita is going to be the real deal and he could be a guy that could bring success to the New Zealand Warriors in the future, you need to be getting your hands on one of those cards. You'll pay overs for it. You'll probably pay, pay close to a grand to get that one card. I think there was only five or ten of them made, so that one would be worth a fortune. But if you believe Chanel Harris-Tavita is going to have success in the future, I mean, it really could be anything. As I said... It is The NRL card game is very different to the NBA and the NFL. It is a completely different ball game. You're not going to make the same sort of money out of the NRL cards as you would in the other ones. It's more of a hobby, to be honest with you. And it's more of a hobby that I, I, it kills me to say, it, but I think it is dying out a little bit because it really is a money grab at the moment. But if you are looking to get in some cards, I would be looking at 
those key young guys that you think in the future could be anything. But be prepared. Sam Walker, for example, it's going to be a matter of time until he has a signature card and a couple of other cards that are going to be numbered. He's going to be worth a heap. I remember Payne Haas. He had a signature card really early in his career. It was only limited to 100. It was probably the rarest that year because everyone knew how good Payne Haas was going to be. I was lucky enough to get one of them. And, I mean, most of those cards are going for about 100 bucks. I had offers of, you know, 250 $350 for that Payne Haas card. And I sort of thought, you know what, I'm going to hold on to it, and then I'm going to start to collect all the Payne Haas cards from now on. And, I mean, within 18 months, mate, the, the, the amount of money you had to spend to have all the Payne Haas cards was beyond belief. And it's going to get even more expensive as his career goes on. So something to keep in mind, I ended up selling my Payne Haas one because it was just too much. I just rolled it into Roger Tuivasa Shet cards. Of course, he's gone now. So that one stings a little bit. But you look at a guy like Ryan Pappenhausen. I know that he's already had a few limited edition ones come out. I know that he had one last year that was limited to just 15. That one was very popular. I'm not sure if Tom Trevojevic has had a signature card come out yet. I'd have to investigate that. But he's another guy that you could potentially look at. And if he gets a limited amount of cards come out eventually that are limited to five or 10 or a really low amount with a jersey patch, with a signature, I mean, those are the real gold mines you want to be getting your hands on. As I said, you don't go into NRL cards expecting to make a heap of money. It's not like basketball cards. It's not like NFL cards where they're trending directly in relation to how they're playing on the court or on the field. It's a little bit different with NRL cards. The audience is a little bit smaller and you've got to be smart with who you're investing in if you're planning to sell them back. Brisbane Broncos, Canberra Raiders, from my experience, those two are very popular. If you've got good cards in those, people will pay to get them. There's a lot of fans in that category. You look at like a Nathan Cleary, he'd be another one that you'd definitely be looking at moving forward. I know the South Sydney Rabbitohs, they have a big following. The Dragons, they always tend to have a big following as well in the cards game. Newcastle as well, a lot of people very keen on them too. So keep in mind who you're targeting. Do a bit of research before you dive into it. But for me, I'd be going for those young guys that you can potentially get them cheap now and then sell them off in the future for a bit. Sam Walker, Reese Walsh, Harry Grant, these sort of guys, they're real standouts for me moving forward. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. On Monday night, we had the premiere of Tales from Tiger Town, the West Tigers documentary brought to you by KO, and it has been unreal. I really enjoyed episode one. Thoroughly looking forward to the next three episodes. As I said in my review on Tuesday, the next three are going to be really exciting, especially the next one. Uh, a couple of really tough matchups, a couple of games they really get slapped in. So interesting to see how Michael Maguire and his demeanor changes over that time and how the players' demeanor changes as well. So very interesting. And look, I've spoken about this for a long time. I've been talking about this for ages. I I think that every NRL team should be recording all this sort of stuff. Even if you don't release it every year, if you do lead to a premiership over the next few years, all this stuff is absolute content gold that your fans would love to see. And, you know, even if you do release it every year, but you don't do a big thing like the West Tigers have, I think it'd be great if all teams did. Don't get me wrong. But even if you just released it to your members to give them a little behind-the-scenes look at how their club is going about their business, I think that'd be unreal. But I think all teams should be doing this. 
and I was thinking about it. If I could go back and watch any sort of documentary like the West Tigers one that we've seen, like the Michael Jordan one for Rugby League, what would be my five topics or five premierships or five moments that I would most want to see? And I've come up with a top five, and there are some absolute crackers in this list. And I'm just going to tell you about a couple notable mentions that I strongly considered that didn't make the list. One of them was the 99 Melbourne Storm Premiership. I think you would start from about 97 when they started to put this squad together. The signings of Lazarus, the signing of Scott Hill, the signing of Brett Morley, Robbie Ross, all these guys that came to form this team. Tawita Nickow's another one that came to form this team and then only in their second year they won the premiership the year before that we spoke to Scott Hill about that I think they got dusted by the Brisbane Broncos in a semi-final or a prelim final they really got slapped that night from memory and he sort of spoke about that they didn't pat themselves on the back and say oh job well done you know we did well to be here they thought no we've got more in the tank and of course they go back the year after not only do they win the grand final they win one of the most controversial, if not the most controversial grand final of all time. It came down to a penalty try to decide it. So I think the 99 Storm Premiership, starting from the beginning of that franchise all the way to that premiership un- in those unbelievable circumstances with sort of the hero of it being Glenn Lazarus. Obviously, his third club, his third premiership, one of the best players we've ever seen. So I think that one would be a sensational one to watch. I'd also like to see the 97 Broncos. Now, of course, the 97 Broncos, we all know that the 97 Knights are the premiership winners, but the Broncos, they won the Super League. And I think the whole Super League saga finalising with the 97 Broncos and how they went about that season. You know, a couple of huge names playing in that team. Obviously, all the Broncos that we know and love from the 90s. Then you throw in a guy like Anthony Mundine as well. Wayne Bennett was their coach. So, so many storylines there. And then, of course, the entire time you've got this split competition. I think that would be unreal to watch. I'd love to see the behind the scenes of that 97 Broncos team. One of the best sides we've ever seen. And just along with all, everything that comes with it, you get all that vintage sort of Super League stuff that we just don't see anymore. The bizarre jerseys, the bizarre ways about going about things. I think it'd be sensational to watch that one. Another one, I had all the mergers. So you're talking about the St. George Dragons. You're talking about the Illawarra Steelers. You're talking about the Magpies um, and the Tigers. I mean, all these merger clubs that came together. You've got the Northern Eagles, of course, as well. So a number of mergers that we've seen in rugby league league that I think the way that those teams came together, I think it'd be unreal to see how all of that unfolded, all the politics behind it, all all the people that felt like they were left out, all the people that were probably holding all the cards. Some very interesting topics there that you would get out of the merger sides. I think the early 1990 Panthers would be a really interesting story. I know from talking to MG, you know, he mentions that they went to the grand final in 1990. They took on this Canberra Raiders side. They they were the team from Penrith. They were the underdogs. They had a bunch of young kids. They went into the city. They got you know they got on the cans on the Tuesday night. Phil Gould had to come into their room and say, "What the fuck are you doing?" And they all sort of hit him, whatever. And you know, Phil Gould said to them, "You've just lost the grand final." Of course, that Sunday they do lose the grand final, and then it's the story of them uh, regathering themselves again in 91. They go all the way to the Premiership. Royce Simmons' last game, he scores two tries in the grand final. I think that early 90 Penrith Panthers side, I reckon that would be an unreal one to watch a documentary of. Obviously, guys like MG, Royce Simmons, young Brad Fitlow, Brandy Alexander, so many superstars that I would love to watch that one. Johnny Cartwright as well. Some Just some of the greats that I think would be unreal. Phil Gould, obviously the coach as well, so another storyline there. You could have parallel with that, the Canberra Raiders of that era as well, which I think would be unbelievable. One of the best teams we've ever seen. You could even start this story from 89 uh, when that young Canberra Raiders side takes on the Balmain Tigers in the greatest grand final we've ever seen or one of the greatest grand finals we've ever seen. I think that'd be unreal. Uh, The Broncos, sort of from their emergence in 1988 when they started, even before that, I know that when we had Tony Durkin on, he sort of said that, you know, they were sponsored by Power Brewing. 
Power Brewing didn't have a beer on the market yet and they put $2 million into the Brisbane Broncos. And, you know, there's a conversation between the Broncos and um, I forget what his name is. I think, I think some, someone Power who owned Power Brewing and they sort of said, geez, I hope your footy team's good. And they said, I hope your beer's good because neither of them existed when they were with each other. So incredible. And the thing only five years later, They'd won back-to-back premierships in 92, 93. Some of the players they got together, some of the guys that had the opportunity to come and represent the Broncos, the Brisbane Rugby League side. I think that'd be a great story as well. The Brisbane Broncos of 06, another underrated premiership. I think watching that season unfold would be unbelievable. You've obviously got Darren Lockyer at the peak of his powers. You've got young guys like Carmichael Hunt. You've got J- Justin Hodges. He changes positions with Carmichael in the back end. You've got Sean Berrigan. He moves from centre into hooker to replace Michael Ennis, who gets injured. You've got Shane Perry, the halfback. Who the hell is Shane Perry, you know? I think that it'd just be an unbelievable story to watch how that one unfolded. I think it probably is the crowning moment in Wayne Bennett's career, to be honest with you. I think another one that involves Wayne Bennett would be the 2010 St. George Illawarra Dragons. Obviously, 09, they were odds-on to win it. They went out in straight sets. They wore the chokers tag for ages. Really interesting bunch of guys, you know. Mark Gasnier walks back into that side during 2010. So many storylines. You've got Steve Young and Dean Young, that little combination there. I think that'd be unreal. You've obviously got the 2014 South Sydney Rabbitohs as well. That'd be a great story going through the history of that. You would probably start that realistically in 1989. You take us through the 90s, Super League, them not being part of the competition, coming back in 2002, making the finals for the first time in, I want to say, 08 or 07, leading up to the 2014 Premiership. And you'd have the little stories along the line. I mean, Adam Reynolds makes his debut in 2013. Uh, Greg Inglis walks into the South Sydney system. Sam Burgess arrives. Michael Maguire arrives. All these little storylines that would add up to an incredible season in 2014 where... They got the absolute best out of every single person on that squad. You had local juniors in like Dylan Walker, who absolutely brained it. AJ, who killed it. Arguably the best center and the best winger in the game that season. All local juniors. That'd be an unbelievable story. But other stories, like we mentioned the Panthers before. What about their 2003 premiership? Another unbelievable story. You could have the Cronulla Sharks and North Queensland Cowboys when they won in 15 and 16. The story of Jonathan Thurston going to North Queensland. The career of Paul Gallen, you know, been through so many losses in origin to get the job done in 2016 against the Melbourne Storm. There are just so many of these incredible moments in rugby league that I missed out on. You know what? I'm sure each and every one of you will be able to name another one or two that would be an unbelievable documentary that we could watch. But I've got my top five here that I would go through. I'm going to start at number five and I'm going to work my way all the way down to number one. Here comes number five. Number five. Coming in at number five for me, I would have the 1995 Sydney Bulldogs, their premiership that they won that season. Season kicks off with a big win against the North Queensland Cowboys. At the end of that game, they're sitting in fourth place. Uh, Coached by Chris Anderson, skipper was, of course, Terry Lamb. So at the end of round one, they're sitting in fourth place. This would be the highest that they would get for the rest of the season. Now, we fast forward all the way to round 13. Now, they go into round 13 against the Newcastle Knights, currently sitting in 7th place. Now, it is a top 8 system like we're used to now. They're sitting in 7th place. So, they're about mid of the table. It's round 13. It's a 22-week season. Then you got finals. So, we're just over halfway through this competition. They're sitting in 7th place. They go up to Newcastle, up to Marathon Stadium to take on the Newcastle Knights. And, of course, they get beat 42-0. They get absolutely slapped 
by the Newcastle Knights up there, demoralising. They finished that week in eighth place after one of the worst losses of the 1995 season, especially for a side like Canterbury. Now, when we spoke to Daryl Halligan, their star winger and one of their greatest goal kickers they've ever had, you got to remember they had Asimov Masri as well. So a pretty uh, a pretty nice compliment there for Daryl Halligan. They come to training on the Monday morning and um, Chris Anderson surprises them. He puts them on a on a houseboat, takes them out on the harbour and just fills the place with alcohol. They get absolutely sloshed. They have some pretty harsh conversations on there. Halligan said, you know, there were some pretty honest conversations on that boat. They got back into the harbour and everything had changed. That afternoon, the Canterbury Bulldogs, they turned a corner and they were ready to jump back into their 95 season. They're currently sitting in eighth place on the ladder. They would finish the season in sixth place. Sixth place going into the finals. You've got the Manly Seagulls. I believe they won the Manly, uh, the minor premiership. They were the red-hot favourites to win this competition. Now, the moment they get off that boat, it's round 13. They play the next 10 games before finals start. Then they played four games in the finals. From those 14 games, they lost two games. They lost a grand total of two games that entire time, which is unbelievable. They lost to the Magpies, and they lost to the Warriors as well. Outside of that, they did not lose a game of football. In the finals, they played the Dragons. They beat them 12-8. They played the Broncos, Red Hot Broncos, dusted them 24-10. Played the Canberra Raiders. Yeah, the Canberra Raiders, that red-hot Canberra Raiders side, beat them 25-6, to and then, of course, played the Manly Seagulls, a team that was always destined to be in this grand final. They beat them 17-4 at the SFS. An unbelievable season, and it all kicked off with an absolute slapping up there at Newcastle, 42-0. And it's one of those games that can turn a season or it can ruin it. The champion coach that he is, Chris Anderson, absolute legend of our game, decided I'm going to make the best out of this. Put them on a boat, got them all absolutely sloshed, let them fight it out, let them argue it, let them call each other out for their bullshit that was costing them so far this year. They come back into the harbour. They go on to win a premiership just a few months later, winning... 12 of their next 14 games. Unbelievable season. This is one that I would love to see a Tales from Tiger Town documentary sort of style for the Canterbury Bulldogs. Number four. Coming in at number four for me, it would be the 2005 State of Origin series. Now, of course, game one will be remembered in Origin folklore for eternity. It's 20-all. We go into extra time, and Brett Kamali, the halfback for the New South Wales Blues, he throws an intercept taken by Matty Bowen down the right edge. Up there at Suncorp, I believe this one was, and Matty Bowen, he runs away to win that game for the Queensland Maroons. An unbelievable moment, a moment that will never be forgotten, a moment that I'm sure Brett Kamali will never forget. It's funny, right now during this Origin series that we just had, we had a couple of those ads for uh, Uber Eats or whatever it was, and there was an ad that had these two in it, Brett Kamali and Matty Bowen. Bowen, a classic state of origin moment, a great moment for Queensland. And of course, New South Wales, they react to this. They drop Brett Kamali. They move Trent Barrett to fight to halfback. And of course, they bring Brayton Astor into the squad to play 5-8. And on the Sunday before the game on Wednesday, uh, there's an injury to Trent Barrett. He's ruled out of this game. New South Wales, they're scrambling. They're working out who do they go to. And of course, they turn to the great, the great one, Andrew Johns. Now, this guy hadn't played a football in a number of weeks. I believe he'd been up in Brisbane in a rehab camp for a number of weeks trying to get his knee sorted out. He reckons he was fitter than what he ever had been off the back of this camp that Wayne Bennett advised him that he could go up there and do. And of course, as the narrative goes, he comes back into this game. It's played down here in Sydney. He gets man of the match and he absolutely brains it. One of the best origin performances we've ever seen. It was this series here where he puts Anthony Minicello in for two tries. He scores one early and then he scores one 
one off a kick as well where Joey hits the pad from 45 metres away. And I know that Minicello told me on the podcast that he knew what what Johns was doing. Absolutely incredible. He also lays a try on in the last few minutes for Danny Badiris, which is an absolute masterclass of ball playing. Kicked three from three goals as well. A sensational performance from Joey. One of the best that we have ever seen. And then, of course, we go to Suncorp Stadium for game three, and he does it again. They absolutely annihilate the Queensland Maroons, winning this game 32-0. Your man of the match in this one was Anthony Minicello. But once again, Joey, he was unbelievable in this game. For Joey to not be selected in game one for us to lose in extra time by throwing an intercept, for us to drop that halfback, move our 5-8 to halfback, then he get injured three days before Origin 2 and us turn to one of the greatest legends our game has ever seen who had nothing in the tank. He didn't have any match fitness, nothing. We turned to Joey. We said, save us. Within three days, he'd won game two. He was man of the match, came back in game three and absolutely brained it again. Queenslanders would absolutely hate this one, but for me, this one had to be on my list. I think the Joey Johns miracle of two 2005, I think it would have to be right up there with the best narratives that we could possibly tell in a documentary style. Number three. I mentioned on Tuesday when I did my review of Tales from Tiger Town that every team should be recording this, including the West Tigers, because you never know where a team can be in two years' time or three years' time. All of this stuff could be so critical as the lead-up to a premiership victory. And of course, at the Tigers, we've seen it happen before. 2005, it came out of absolutely nowhere. And this is a side that I would love to see documented properly. Tim Sheens arrives in the early 2000s, and the West Tigers, they are just an absolute basket case. There is not much doing. There's a bit of talent here and there. You've got a young Benji Marshall coming through, Scott Prince. You've got these other younger guys that they can play, but, I mean, no one's really threatened by these guys. You've got a couple of older heads as well that have been around the game for a while. You've got Brett Hodgson, who's arrived from the Parramatta Eels. There's a few moving pieces, but nobody is overly threatened by this West Tigers team. No one's really taken them seriously. Of course, two years before this, we had the fairy tale, the Penrith Panthers in 03, but it was a one-off. I mean, no one thought that you could possibly do what the West Tigers did that season. And one of the things that gets me most excited about the prospect of having this documentary is a story that Matt Johns tells, that he went out to West Tigers training one day to do a story for Channel 9 or to do a bit for the footy show or something. And he was there and he was watching with Tim Sheens and he said that he could just see the West Tigers. They were going through all these these ball skills patterns. Yeah, And, and, and Matty said it was like nothing he'd seen before and he sort of said to Tim Sheens mate look at the way they're moving the ball look at how in sync they are why aren't you doing this on a Sunday and Tim Sheens sort of said mate we're trying to it's coming together just give us time and I think that was in about 2004 I think it was the back end of 04 when no one was really taking the West Tigers seriously they weren't doing too well of course 2005 rolls around and Benji goes to a new level Scott Prince he just becomes the leader that we always knew he could be Brett Hodgson is playing lights out footy Robbie Farrer emerges as a really fantastic creative nine and a heap of young forwards in you know Anthony LaFranchi and these sort of guys they just really find themselves and all of a sudden this style of football that they've been practicing for a long time that people have been looking at just going what on earth are the West Tigers doing they're just filling numbers in this competition they explode and the final series that year was unbelievable I believe they slapped the North Queensland Cowboys in week one they beat them by about 50 points I remember Brett Hodgson had an absolute blinder in that game they then had to play the St. George Illawarra Dragons to get into the grand final and of course the Dragons then they were star-studded absolutely star-studded we're talking Trent Barrett Matty Cooper Mark Gasnier Sean Timmons these sort of absolute 
legends of our game. And the Tigers, they were given next to no hope. I think I remember Benji scores the first try off a scrum, and the narrative goes from there. They win that one like 16-12 or something. All of a sudden, the fanfare starts with the West Tigers into the grand final. Unbelievable. The next night... The North Queensland Cowboys pull a massive upset led by Jonathan Thurston over the Parramatta Eels, who led by Tim Smith that year, absolutely brained it as well. I mean, the odds-on grand final that season was going to be the Parramatta Eels and the St. George Illawarra Dragons. We ended up getting the Cowboys and the West Tigers. And that night, wow, what an evening of football. I was lucky enough to be there for that game. I remember watching Benji Marshall flick past to Paddy Richards, scoring that unbelievable try. Incredible stuff. There was a couple of other moments in that game that I'll never forget. Scott Prince, I think people forget he had an absolute blinder another narrative to this story Scott Prince he was given the captaincy in about round 10 or so because their, their their current captain was injured he came back a number of weeks later and Tim Sheen's made the tough decision no nah, I'm going to stick with Scott Prince the thing that stands out for me for this West Tigers grand final and I would love to see the atmosphere around the team in the lead up to the finals is because the way that they played in round 10 was the way that they played in the grand final. They didn't go into their shell. They didn't change anything about it. In fact, they put even more chips into the middle and went all in on the style of football that they were playing that was working for them. So many teams go in success. So I look at that 9 Eels side. They had all this success playing this razzle-dazzle footy. They got to the Melbourne Storm and they sort of went into their shell for the first 60 minutes and it really cost them. Tim Shane's absolute masterstroke of a coach. Unbelievable stuff. I heard Benny Elias talking on Brett Finch's podcast a couple of months ago about how they were looking for a new coach. And I think it was Laurie Dale he spoke to and he sort of said mate we're trying to find a coach and he said ring Tim Sheens now he is the guy you need and of course just a couple of years later they would win the premiership an unbelievable season the 05 West Tigers I think they were 500 to 1 to win that competition halfway through the year unbelievable odds you just do not win an NRL premiership from those sort of odds the West Tigers did it for me Probably the best fairy tale we've ever seen. The start of an unbelievable career for Benji Marshall. The moment where Scott Prince elevated himself to the next level. Robbie Farrer as well. Brett Hodgson, the crowning moment in his career as well. I think this one would be an unreal documentary to sit back and watch. Number two. This one, this would be really, really special. We obviously mentioned the 97 Broncos in our notable mentions that that would be a great one, obviously because of the Super League war and everything. I think this one would be even better. The 1997 Newcastle Knights. Now, of course, Super League play a huge role. There's also a heap going on in the town of Newcastle. Now, I won't touch it too in-depth on that because I don't know the exact details, but I hear all of the Newcastle Knights boys talk about how much it meant to the town. The other important thing here, Newcastle, obviously rugby league, Heartland. You think about all the legends that have come out of there. Their competition is still so strong up there. It's essentially like a little first-grade competition up there at Newcastle. It's unreal. This town, they live and breathe rugby league. We spoke about the other day when they were meant to have Origin 3 up there. I mean, Origin 2 I think it was something like 45% of New South Wales tuned into that. In Newcastle, it was like 85% of people tuned into Origin 2. Devastating they didn't get to have Origin 3 out there this year. That would have been a sensational way to finish that Origin series. But the Newcastle Knights in 97 are so many storylines going into this one. You've got the whole Super League war. You've got the emergence of the Hunter Mariners. The town was completely split. You had all the Newcastle Knights boys who sided with the NRL. They had to have a bit of a fight to keep Matt Johns and Andrew Johns from what I believe. And this is where you would start this whole narrative. I know there's a story about Matt and Andrew Johns, they're considering going to the other side, and then Phil Gould makes a trip up the highway, convinces them to stay. Unbelievable story. They obviously played the Manly Seagulls in this grand final, who were red-hot favourites, yeah? They, this is their third grand final in a row they'd gone to, red-hot favourites. You had, obviously, the Chief and Spud clash. This would be part of this narrative as well, one of the most fiercest rivalries that we've ever seen in rugby league history. You've also got Andrew Johns the week before against North 
Sydney, he punctures his lung and is essentially told uh, that he won't be able to play footy again this year. And he comes out in the grand final, absolutely brains it, sets up the winning try for Darren Albert. We all know, we all know that moment. It's it's in my audio to the start of my podcast. That's how highly I hold this moment. Joey goes down the short side, dummies to the marker. I believe it's Hopawade. He sells it to him and hits Darren Albert back on the inside, and he goes in under the sticks. An unbelievable victory. The, the Clive Churchill medalist that year was, of course, Robbie O'Davis. He scored two tries in that grand final. Absolutely killed it as well. But this 97 Knights grand final, I think it would be great for a documentary. And you know what? It wouldn't finish with Darren Albert scoring. You would go into all the celebrations after the boys driving back up the highway. They reckon that it was packed for the last hour of that trip with Newcastle Knights fans everywhere. They got back uh, to the stadium, absolutely packed out there. All the celebrations, better than Lego. There was so many moments from this Newcastle region from that time celebrating this grand final. It would be an unbelievable story, even better it really is the emergence of Andrew Johns. He's obviously been a gun for the last few years, but this is the moment where Joey owns the biggest stage and the biggest moment on the biggest stage to defeat the best team in the competition, the Manly Seagulls. I think without this moment, I think Joey still would be an immortal, but my God, this one elevates him to a level that not many guys have. An unbelievable moment from Joey. you got to feel for Matty Johns. Obviously kicked the winning field goal against North Sydney the week before without Joey on the field. Took the field goal in this game and hits the post. Bounces over to the right-hand side side, which gives Andrew Johns the opportunity to own the moment. You've got to respect Matty Johns for what he achieved during this final series. An unbelievable player himself. You've obviously got the two brothers as halves too. I mean, it just keeps on evolving this story. The more layers, the deeper you go, the more layers there are that would be interesting in a documentary. I think this would be a sensational one. One that I would love to watch. Number one. My number one overall pick for the documentary from Rugby League that I would most want to see, and a little bit controversial. I know people aren't going to like this one. But it is something that would intrigue me so much. And look, the reality of this podcast is that, sorry, the reality of this documentary is that it would actually cover about seven years. But there is so much that happens in this seven years. And if teams were recording everything that happens and pretending like they were making a documentary, I think this would be one of the most unbelievable stories in rugby league. Now, it starts in 2006. Uh, 2006, the Melbourne Storm, they take on the Brisbane Broncos in the grand final there. The Brisbane Broncos win that game. And for me, it was sort of a transition period in rugby league. You had Darren Lockyer and the experienced Broncos taking on the Melbourne Storm, who, yes, they'd won a premiership in 99, but it was this new crop of players that were coming into this team. Cameron Smith, Billy Slater, these young guys that were really making their way into stardom. They lose the 2006 grand final, the Melbourne Storm, and they learn a lot of lessons from that. We had Scott Hill on the podcast, and uh, that was his last ever game for the Melbourne Storm. And, of course, he sort of said in that game that, you know, what happened after that with the Melbourne Storm, it didn't shock him in the slightest because he knew they were on the verge of something really special. Now, Scott Hill leaves um, and Matty Orford leaves as well. And it sort of um, it sort of leaves a bit of a hole in this team. And they're looking around working out who's going to wear the seven jersey. And, of course, Cooper Cronk. Now, he starts the 2006 uh, season at halfback. He goes all the way to that grand final. He loses that one. So now you've got Cronk. Smith and Slater in this team. They've just lost their first grand final. The old saying is you've got to lose one to win one. And the Melbourne Storm, good God, didn't they learn some lessons from this grand final loss to the Brisbane Broncos? Unbelievable stuff. Of course, they go on to win in 07. They defeat the Manly Seagulls. Greg Inglis, an absolute five-star performance in that one. He was incredible winning the Clive Churchill medal. He plays 5-8, replacing Scott Hill the season after. Absolutely kills it. They go to 2008, and we got a grand final rematch. The Manly Seagulls and the Melbourne Storm. I've spoken about this rivalry before and how it dominated this five or six uh, 
year period. It was unbelievable. And, of course, Cameron Smith is ruled out for that game. Cooper Cronk is the captain and Manly. They win that one 40 nil. It just adds to the narrative of this Melbourne Storm side. It really damages them. It really knocks them around. 2009 comes around, and the entire 2009 season is all about one man, Jared Hayne, and the incredible run that he went on. At the same time, though, you've got the Melbourne Storm just toiling away, doing their thing, sitting at the top of the ladder, waiting for the big the big stages to arrive. And, of course, these two teams play each other in the grand final. They nullify Jared Hayne. They win that premiership. Unbelievable scenes. Two premierships in three years, three grand finals in a row for this Melbourne Storm side who has still got another decade of dominance ahead of them. And then 2010, their premiership favourites once again in the salary cap drama. They get caught for being over the salary cap. And we've obviously had Brett White. We've had Brett Finch on this podcast as well. Two guys that featured in that 2009 Premiership winning team. Finchie, of course, he was playing for the Parramatta Eels halfway through 2009, made a move to the Melbourne Storm because Parramatta didn't want him and then beat them in the grand final. An incredible story. Finchie was getting a match payment regardless of which team won. He was getting a ring regardless of which team won. Unbelievable things for Brett Finch. Another part of this storyline, 2002, the salary cap drama. And I would just love to have some cameras on that day at training because Brett White and Finchie spoke about it. It was just a normal day of training and Craig Bellamy wasn't there, which is a little bit weird. And both guys said the same thing, that they thought Craig Bellamy was up to one of his tricks or he was hiding in a bush somewhere or he was up in the grandstand, he was up in a room watching what they were doing. It was sort of a player-led session at that point. And they all sort of thought, oh, he must be watching from somewhere to see how we react, who leads and everything. So all on their best behavior. And then they get a call to come in. You can tell the cameras are starting to gather and Craig Bellamy calls them into a room and just explains it to them. And, you know, the, the boys, you know, it's obviously a very a very sad and a very personal moment for them taking, you know, having their premierships taken off them and everything they've achieved over the last few years for something that wasn't their fault. And I just, I would love to see the emotions in that room. I would love if we were able to have interviews with those players recently after, you know, just in the club scenario, them talking about what's happening. I would love to be a fly on the wall for the scenes where they go and talk to the media and Craig Melanie walks across the field with all 30 of his players standing behind him in a V. Just such a united team ready to take this on together. They play that season for no points whatsoever. I think they did the same in 2011. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. But the recovery from that, the guys that had to leave, we know that Brett White had to leave. We know that Finchie left. We know that Greg Inglis had to leave as well. One of the all-time greats. So you would go through that whole narrative and how this team built themselves up and the decisions that they made in the wake of those points being stripped, those premierships being stripped, and those players having to leave. They made the decision we're going to back these three players in. We're going to back in Cameron Smith, Billy Slater, Cooper Cronk, and we're just going to find reasonable pieces around them to fill in the other gaps. And for me, this narrative would finish in 2012 when they go on to win that premiership. A very similar season to 2009, funnily enough. The whole the whole entire season is built around one guy, Ben Barber and his Canterbury Bulldogs. He's on fire, Dalian Metal, best player in the competition. Highlights like we've never seen. Melbourne Storm, just working away in the background, sitting at the top of the ladder, getting through their season, once again waiting for the big stages to arrive. They get to grand final day. Ben Barbary has one good play uh, where he makes a break. He kicks it. Billy Slater saves Josh Morris from scoring a try there. Outside of that, really did nullify Ben Barber in that grand final. Once again, you would get to be a fly on the wall for those two premierships. The first one when they're taking on Jared Hayne, who's in probably the best form we've ever seen from anyone ever, and talking about how they're going to deal with that. Then once again with Ben Barber, how are we going to take this guy out of the game. I think it'd be a sensational narrative to tell from 06 
when this young group of guys makes it to that first grand final, Scott he- Scott Hill leaves. Greg Inglis jumps in at six. They win the premiership the next year. They try and go back-to-back. First team to do it since 92-93. They get absolutely slapped by the Manly Seagulls. Cameron Smith, he misses that grand final. They come back the year after facing this juggernaut of Jared Hayne. They win that premiership. It all gets taken away from them. Superstars are forced to leave. Internationals are forced to leave. Then they have to rebuild, and they build it all the way back up to that night in 2012. An unbelievable game against the Canterbury Bulldogs and Benny Barber. The moment that I'll remember, of course, the pass that Cooper Cronk threw to Billy Slater. I've spoken about that a couple of times on this podcast. I think it's my favorite play of all time. Just rugby league poetry, that one. A sensational night. Cooper Cronk winning the Clive Churchill medal that night. Unbelievable scenes. For me, that would be my number one pick. I understand it's controversial. We don't really like the Melbourne Storm. They had the salary cap drama, all that, but you can't tell me it wouldn't be interesting. And if we went through those whole six or seven years, we rode the entire wave of losing grand finals, winning grand finals, losing grand finals, losing all your points, losing all your stars, building back up with these three guns with a couple of pieces around them all the way to 2012 when they win that premiership. I think this one would be an unbelievable story led by two guys, Cameron Smith and, of course, the mastermind, Craig Bellamy. Bit of breaking news over the last couple of hours, and it's reported by Ben Dobbin from the Courier Mail. And Ben Dobbin, obviously a pretty reputable guy, guy a journo that especially I've found uh, he's never really that far off the mark. He doesn't really make up much shit. So a really interesting one here that he's come out this morning and said, "Look, Tavita Pango Jr. He will be at the Canterbury Bulldogs in 2022," which we sort of sort of already knew. One of the worst kept secrets in rugby league over the last couple of weeks, but also. Ben Dobbins reporting that Tavita Pangai Jr., he will join the Penrith Panthers for the remainder of this season, which is massive news and really interesting news, to be honest with you. Look, you all know my thoughts on Tavita Pangai Jr. I like guys that are reliable. I like to go into uh, the finals. I like to go into the big stage with guys that I know I can rely on. And the Penrith Panthers right now, They've got a squad of about 25 guys that I believe they can rely on all of them. They've shown over the last two years that they are all reliable. The new guys that have come into the system have done really well, like Scotty Sorensen, Matty Eisenhut, these sort of guys. I think that this one is a really interesting guy to bring into this team. And I look at their side and I go, you know what, do they need Tevita Pangai Jr.? And for me, I don't think they do. Now, look, if you can get Tavita at his best, no team is worse off for having Tavita in the side. Yeah, so don't get, you know, let, let's not get confused there. This isn't a bad signing if they can get him right. But, geez, I'm really worried about this one, to be honest with you. I just, I look at Tavita Pangai Jr., I look at him over the last couple of years, and I think to myself, geez, is it, is it really the sort of guy that fits in with what the Penrith Panthers have been about for the last two years? I'm not completely sure, and... I know that every time I talk about Tavita, and especially this year, people say, oh, he's been playing great the last couple of weeks. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, I get that. But the emphasis is on the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, For the last five or six years, it's been pretty depressing to watch, you know, the kind of selfish plays that Tavita's had for a long time. And as I said, I spoke to him a few times on Instagram. He did a dream team for me. He's a really nice guy, really good guy. He... He, you know, he, he messaged me back two or three times to change his dream team over a couple of months. So, and there was something he didn't have to do. It would have meant nothing to him, but he does seem to be a good fella from the little I've had to do with him. But we've had a number of off-field incidents. We've had a n- number of on-field incidents as well that really make me worried about Tavita. And I'm not sure if Penrith need him. As I said, if you can get the absolute best out of Tavita, if you can promise me you're going to get the best out of him, fantastic signing. But I'm sorry, history tells me that you cannot confidently say you're going to get the best out of him. You cannot confidently tell me that. This is a squad that has a fantastic culture at the moment. They've been building a great thing for 18 months now. 
to bring a guy like this in in the you know the last three months leading into the grand final after they lost it last year to come back I don't know I'm not I'm a little bit concerned about this and I know, I know. Like I've, I've got all the messages this morning. Yeah, having Tavita Pango Jr. and Viliami Kikau on the field at the same time, it's going to be made. This will put them in front of the storm. Look, I don't think it will. I really don't. I mean, Kikau was in career best form last year. We got to that grand final, and Melbourne handled him perfectly. In, in fact, they forced a heap of errors out of him. Felice Cafusi did an absolute number on him. And I look at Tavita Pango Jr. and exceptional talent, unreal. You, you know, I, I, we can go and watch his highlights. Down and watch his highlights. I mean, how many of those are against? The Melbourne Storm, uh, the Sydney Roosters when they're full strength, the South Sydney Rabbitohs, you know, the good sides in the competition. Uh, Tavita hasn't shown that he's able to do that on the big stages. He hasn't proven that in any way, shape, or form. A lot of the time when his team's needed him over the last few years, he's been sitting in the grandstand. He's sitting there at the moment. I I understand this year it's it's controversial. Yeah, I I get that 100% this year, but... I mean, yeah, you, you can make an exception for this year. They had a they, they had a crackdown on the rules. He probably got a little bit unlucky. But, I mean, the writing's on the wall for the rest of the years, isn't it? Let's be perfectly honest here. I mean, I, I just I don't understand this for Penrith. And if, if I'm the Melbourne Storm, and I, personally, I think Craig Bellingham would be looking at this giggling to himself going, beautiful, that's not the sort of guy they should have in their squad. I think Craig Bellingham would be looking at this and going, that's not the sort of guy I would bring into my team right now. I, I, I think Craig Bellamy would be stoked by this. I think he's one of those guys, Tavita Pango Jr., that, yes, he can do X amount. He can do this, offloads, this, that, that, that. He's got lazy plays in him. He's got selfish plays at times. And I think the Melbourne Storm, they'll be really excited to have him on the field. I think they'll be really excited to be able to get at him. If they meet in a grand final, i got to tell you, I'm not overly concerned about Tavita. I'm really not. I know, I know he's a great player. I know he's got a huge skill set. I get it. But big stages, he hasn't performed. He's not a reliable character. I think he's the sort of guy that Craig Billing would look at and go, yep, I can get the better of this guy around the ruck. I can do it. And look, I understand the argument. Tavita's not going to be out there for 80 minutes. He'll be out there for 30 minutes or so. But Melbourne will make the absolute best out of it, without a doubt. And I think that we've learned with Tavita, he's this unbelievable impact player. But when he does come on in those impact moments, he's going to try and make a difference. He's going to push his hand. He goes for these little selfish offloads, does these little selfish things we've seen throughout his entire career. If I'm Craig Bellamy, I'm stoked. I actually think that my my prediction for the Melbourne Storm to win the comp improves off the back of this signing. And that might seem a little bit backwards. And I hope that um, that's not offensive to Tavita because hopefully he's turned the corner and he proves me wrong and he absolutely brains it for Penrith. But I just don't think it's a good fit. I don't think it's a good fit for this team at all. And I'm very interested to see if this does play out. Ben Dobbin, he's normally pretty accurate. And dare I say, if I'm Tavita Pangai Jr. and I'm going to Canterbury next year, let's be honest here, a lot of unknown over what's going to happen over the next few years at Canterbury. I would take absolute peanuts to go to the Penrith Panthers to join in this squad and try and, try and win a premiership this year. I mean, you'd be crazy not to. He's probably not going to get picked for, for Brisbane. He's been told he's unwanted there. I mean, even if he does get picked, he's going to be on the outer. He's going to be playing limited minutes to finish in the bottom three teams. I mean, if you've got the opportunity, you might as well go down to the Penrith Panthers, play the same role, but at least you can potentially win a premiership. At least then you can you, you can boost your stocks moving forward. I mean, this is perfect for Tavita Pangai Jr., but I'm not sure if it's perfect for the Penrith Panthers. I'm going to be very interested to see how this one plays out. I'm also looking at Tavita knowing that he's not going to be at that club next year. I mean, is, is the same sort of energy going to be there? I know he wants to win. I get that. I understand that, but... I don't know. It just seems like a bit of a strange mix to me, and this isn't one that I would have seen coming 
in any way, shape, or form. On paper, this is a great signing. We're going to see highlights of Davido. We're going to see the offloads, the tries, the you know the unbelievable plays. But don't forget all the other stuff that comes with Tavita that has realistically highlighted his entire career so far. Hopefully, Ivan Cleary can get the very best out of him. I think it'll be unreal for the Penrith Panthers if they can. I'm very skeptical if they will, though. And I think Craig Bellamy, he won't say anything. He won't give any indication. But I think he low-key... He'd be quite happy about this. I think the Penrith Panthers... Um, oh, sorry, I think the Melbourne Storm forwards would be going, beauty. We, we've handled him for years. We're not overly concerned about him. He doesn't really fit into what they do. We know we can get an error out of him. We know we can get him upset. We know we can get a brain explosion out of him. If I'm Melbourne, I'm not overly worried about this, to be honest with you. And I hope that doesn't come across in an arrogant way comparing Melbourne to Penrith or anything like that because I think Penrith can really give them a really good shake this year. But I don't think this is the sort of guy that they need to be bringing into this squad. Doesn't make a heap of sense to me. I understand on paper how good it looks, but I think in reality, you're risking a lot of a, a lot of fantastic things for a little. You're risking a lot of the great culture that you've built over the two years for a little bit of gain in Tavita Pangai Jr., who, I'm sorry, he hasn't been the same dominating character against the Melbourne Storm every time he's played them as he has against the bottom six sides. If the Penrith Panthers happen to play the bottom six sides in the finals, yippee, great signing. Tavita's going to carve. But he's not proven against those big teams. He's not proven on the big stages. He's not proven to be reliable that through an entire season. He's not reliable in finals. We haven't seen it. We haven't seen it at all. And I'm, I'm sorry if that offends people, but... I mean, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that my opinion here is wrong. Tell me that from what you've seen of Tavita Pangai Jr.'s career, I'm wrong. I mean, yes, we've seen little moments where he stood up to Jason Taumalolo and did the best thing in the world and gave it to him. Oh, that's the best forward in the world. Tavita smashed him. But then three weeks after that, you don't see anything. We go through this same cycle with Tavita all the time where he has these little highs followed by these lows that we just seem to forget constantly. It blows me away. I, I had some of my mates who I consider to understand footy to some extent message me a few months ago, oh, he has to play Origin. Fucking what? We? I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm watching a different guy to Tavita. Maybe I'm, I'm not watching him closely enough. Maybe I'm missing something, but this doesn't look like a guy that I would be bringing into my team if my only competition realistically was the top teams in the Melbourne Storm and the Manly Seagulls moving forward. I don't think any other team can beat the Panthers, and they're relying on this guy to come in and be successful to beat them. It just doesn't make sense to me. I think you're risking a lot to gain a little out of Tavita Pangai Jr., and the risk that you're taking, he's shown his track record shows that the next brain explosion it's probably not far away just my opinion interesting to see how this one plays out let me know your thoughts on this Tavita Pangai Jr. potentially signing with the Penrith Panthers